today, first episode, or first cast, of Just Another Bozo <laughs> on the bus. <laughs> uh, Are you excited, Brady? I am. I, I have never podcasted before, so... So you're a virgin. I'm a virgin. You're popping my podcast cherry. <laughs> All right. Well, not to be too graphic, uh, you know. No, no. You, for, but yeah, it's a podcast, so there are no. Fuck. This will be rated whatever. Go. Right? We can get yeah. crude if we want, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> not. <laughs> By the time it gets onto iTunes, though, I will need to give it a rating. So we'll keep it R. Okay, we we'll can keep, keep it R. We don't need to go. Yeah. Um. So you know, our our discussions today are going to kind of cover a lot of different areas, but. Let's let's kind of start with because you and I was thinking about this on the way here this morning. You and I have known each other for well, this is where I got lost five six years. So it would be since I was twenty five. Twenty five was when I first came to Lighthouse after my which is where we are right which now. Which is where actually. we are right now. Isn't that yeah. weird? <laughs> and like a, just shortly into my tenure here, we ran into each other, okay. and I'm thirty two. So that was seven years ago. Yeah, it's wild, right? right? So uh, for, for our listeners, let's tell them Lighthouse is um, what well, is and was a uh, drug and alcohol treatment center, I guess we should say that, um, and looked at all and, and helped people with behavioral health or mental health issues as well, um, but uh, run by a mutual friend of ours, Brett Heiner. Shout out to Brett Heiner. Shout out to Brett. Shout out to Shout Brett. Shout out to Brett. Refuge Recovery at Lighthouse every Wednesday, 6.30. You can do it. You can I've promote been it. here. Let's yeah. go. All right. <laughs> Preferably probably for people in the Salt Lake City area. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, <laughs> it's worth a flight, man. Yeah. Actually, let's, let's, let's start out there. Let's, um, let's, let's talk a, just a, just a little bit about Refuge Recovery because you know, you and I have for the past, I'd say, year now, maybe yeah, for about a year. You know, we've been promoting it um, through our other uh, um, through our other program that we're affiliated with, and um, refuge seems to be a way in which people get together and connect and um, are able to um, find a way to meditate in a group format, which seems to help life. Uh, dealing with life stress, stressors and anxiety just in general it it seems to be a really powerful tool and I just wondered what your experience of that has been yeah yeah it's been a it's been a journey for sure like um, I've been doing refuge for about a year and a half maybe a little more started doing it here and then we started up the the Wasatch meeting and initially it was all about community for me like hey just somewhere sort of looked at it like an AA meeting and um, and that's still a, a significant portion of why I go to refuge is the community and the connections I have there. But now it has grown into a practice when it comes to the meditation side of things. Obviously, I enjoy the group meditation, but I've been able to channel a belief around meditation being helpful just in my daily life. And it all started with refuge, to be honest. I did some re- I did some meditation when I was early in IOP. But I never took it serious. Mm-hmm. Having that staple to come here every week mm-hmm. piqued my curiosity and led me to a belief in meditation, which I love and hate meditation, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> it is a total love-hate relationship because uh-huh. I can meditate, you know, my morning or my nightly meditation and feel really like 
some relief from it, some mindfulness, and then I can go to it, and it's like the first fucking time I've ever meditated, and I hate it. Um, but I've done it long enough now that I believe in it because I've seen effects, so it doesn't matter if I love or hate yeah. it, right? Why do you think it's so hard for, for people to, to meditate, to embrace it? I mean, we, we talk about this and promote this as part of, a part of self-care and well-being and, and you know working on sobriety and those kinds of things, but it just... Why do you think people find it so difficult to do it, or at least do it long enough to get feel the benefits of it? Yeah, and I could only speak to my experience, why I found it difficult. Um, it's a lot, it was a lot easier for me to meditate, like I said, with the group, because you got the connections there, and you know, a lot of time, for me, there was an ulterior motive behind doing something like that. But when you get home, you're sort of by yourself, and you just sit there, and it's like, what the hell am I doing this for? I'm going to sit here for 10 minutes or 15 minutes and just breathe, you know? And it, Mindful breath work, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but like, it's not instantaneous. It's not like a rush. It's mm -hmm. not like feeding this dopamine rush that you get from, yeah. from a lot of times just connection and recovery, you know? That kind of stuff. And so that, to me, was is why it's tricky um and fortunately for me i just sort of now it's definitely something i love and enjoy but i was sort of i don't want to say beaten into submission with it but around it long enough that eventually <laughs> it took form in my life if yeah, that makes the idea sense. Of beating meditation <laughs> yeah, i know <laughs> i know that doesn't that's not in alignment with my you know that's a little counterintuitive <laughs> but if you if that makes sense right because i was around it because i was in treatment for so long so it was like oh let's go to meditation and then it and finally, enough consistency there that it transferred into my personal yeah. life. Yeah, cool. cool. So. Well, it seems to be growing pretty rapidly. And though it's maybe, it starts off slow for some people, the benefits seem to be great. And I agree that the, the purpose of it being developing community. Um, and most of the philosophy and, and the direction in which um, the, the way to treat um, obsessive compulsive behavior or addiction, substance abuse, however we want, we want to identify it, you know, anxiety, um, depression and so forth is developing healthy bonds with people and definitely refuges is a way to, to do that. For sure. So, For sure. What do you think brought you into this, the whole community as far as, um, and when I say community, it's, uh, I'm talking about the sobriety recovery community. What, what brought you into the wanting to in, make that an important center piece of your life the, the recovery community um i mean to be honest it started let's see it started with a breakdown like you know that's that um bottom they talk about in aa it started there man like i reached a point of realization and sort of um aha moment where it was like i have no meaningful connections in life and i have people that love me from the family point of view and outside of that no one's checking for me and you know I burrowed myself into this isolated disconnected hole and I think it got dark enough for long enough that eventually something within me was just like so hurt and so in pain that it it just innately needed connection and that's when I put myself to in-house treatment and s started to sort of experience authentic connection off of everything and that was like a drug in and of itself at the mm. time, right? Yeah. And um, so it started with that bottom for me. It started with that. 
But do you kind of remember, I mean, you were saying, you know, I got to this sort of dark place. Do you, do you remember what the conflict was within you then, what you were feeling? Yeah, so that is a complex question, right? Because I could go on um, drugs, numbness for mm-hmm. a long time, just by nature disconnects and isolates mm-hmm. you. And so I think a lot of it is that, and we want to make it more complex than it is a lot of the time. But underpinning like why I would have gotten that situation in the first place was a lot of, in my on my journey was a lot of like um, high school stuff, um, stuff where I learned to put on a mask and pretend because I didn't feel like I belonged. Mm-hmm. There was some quote unquote trauma in high school um, in losing some friends and sort of some bully-esque type situations that um, made me feel like I was, I was not enough and I was incomplete. And that drove the drug use, which drove the disconnection and the isolation. Do you remember the nature of the bullying? What stood out to you about it? How you, how well, you felt isolated, maybe? It was a confusing, it was a conflicting, really difficult theme, especially for a teenager, because I felt like I deserved it and brought it on myself. Because what happened um, is I told her, I, I, I took drugs and mm-hmm. I told on a kid mm-hmm. when I got called to the principal office, the kid that sold him. So I was labeled a narc, a rat. And... Um, it was a rough group of high school friends at the time. I was all about being popular on the in crowd. All that was like my life, right? That's all I cared about. And it was overnight where all of that was flipped on its ear. Mm-hmm. And the next two years of my high school experience was about um, cowering and hiding from that group of people that were verbally definitely abusive and I was scared that I was going to get jumped and beat this, you know, for two years basically. And they were incessant and never, you know? And so that whole dynamic, um, I would like be the school at school during the day and then at home alone. And, you know, and that's where for me, and, and there's stuff before that I've explored mm-hmm. even further in, in grade school and junior high stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but, I point to that as like a very significant emotional, almost emotional trauma for me as a teenager mm-hmm. going through that, right? It sounds traumatic. It does. Yeah. And that's a lot to, to go through, especially when at this period in your life, I mean, you're developing an identity of who you are and how you fit in, you know, what your, your views are, how you, you know, see yourself um, connected to different aspects in the community. And, uh, We'll get to sort of the the big piece of that a little bit later on when we talk about uh, you know ideology, um, sure. theology, and those kinds of things. Sure. Which, we, which I, I kind of see that the way the the podcast goes, we kind of start off, you know, kind of you know how we got here, kind yeah, of thing, yeah, and then look at some of the different aspects of things. We'll you know we'll move into the victim narrative, but then eventually, especially in school, we know that you know. Um, Theological musings and, and ideology can have a, a big impact, especially in a place here like Utah. But For sure. um, this 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 idea, the development I was going to wanted to move into was um, a sort of feeling like a victim. And, and when when we're bullied, especially in those developmental years, it's hard not to feel like a victim. You know, um, it's pretty normal to think like you know something's the world's against me or people are against me, and 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 becomes very fearful. Um, I have very feel like I'm, I mean I've experienced this too at times where I feel like I have very little control over things. 
Um, but that does lead to that sense of being victimized by people around us. When it comes to this idea of the victim narrative for you, how do you kind of unpack that now when you, you look at look back at that time in your life and, and compare it to where you are today? Um, yeah, when I look back at it, um, obviously perspective is gained as you mature and grow because in the moment it was tricky for me because I felt like I deserved it like I said, right? So the victim there, you know, I put on this front and tried to pretend like I was okay while being... And, um, you know, I had no ability to understand that it wasn't that big a deal. Like, I was just doing the best that I could. Mm -hmm. And... So I don't know, and it still gets me. Like, still, you know, if I go and sit in that, you know, I still get confused, and I still get... Um, uh, but I just... I, I believed I was helpless in the moment. Mm -hmm. I believed that there was nothing I could do to make things better. Mm -hmm. And so I just accepted reality as I'm going to have to face this every day, and I can't talk to anyone about mm -hmm. it. I can't tell leadership about it, because then... Uh, then that's just going to intensify it because the kids that are doing this are going to see me going and talking to people and trying to get help. And so I, I was just convinced that I had to just carry that burden and grit my teeth and get through it <laughs> um, without understanding that there were outlets I could have reached out to for help and, and support through that. And so I was just a victim to um, the like confusion and not being... Um, in a place where I felt comfortable to reach out for help. Where do you think that sort of, um, where do you think the idea of, I don't, I'm not able to reach out for help or I can't reach out for help. Do you have a, a an idea of where that came from? Um, I don't know. I've always been a black and white thinker mm -hmm. always, you know? Um, and so, you know, I don't know. Good question. Um, I think a, a lot of it goes to um, just being instilled with like the, the seeing the world in black and white terms and not understanding it's a nuanced, <laughs> you know, um, world out there. And it, there's not the, the gray area is really where we live. Mm -hmm. and, and so when I get in my head, like this is how it's supposed to be, I had no ability to think outside of that box. And so. Um, I don't know if that even makes sense, but no, no, it's good. it makes a lot of sense actually. Um, so how did you at, at this point, and this is probably, at, at, this is probably a, a moment to look at, well, how did I, how did my family hold this for me? Because did they, they knew what was going on. I'm going to guess. So they did, but they didn't. Um, they definitely knew, but it, I think for them, it was also one of those things like walking on eggshells because, um, they loved and cared for me, but it's a high school kid who's acting like he's okay and pretending like everything's okay when he comes home. Um, I don't know that they knew the intensity of mm -hmm. it when I was like in classes or in the hallway and stuff uh -huh. like that. But I know they knew I was in pain, and I, you know, and we we tried to have conversations about it, and um, I was not open to it. You know, I was I'm okay. Nothing's wrong. <laughs> Don't talk, you know, it made me feel so shameful in that time period that to even, even acknowledge I was in so much denial uh -huh. that even that the fact I was this kid who ratted, mm 
mm-hmm. I was in denial that that even happened. So it was like I pr- I pushed it to the side because it was too big for me to cope with. Um, and then the family dynamics didn't help because as this was happening, I didn't get hardcore into like hard drugs, but I continued to smoke weed and drink and mm-hmm. my parents would occasionally find shit hidden in my room. And then they'd have to come home. We'd have to have that conversation all while, the, you know what I mean? And I was definitely smoking weed and drinking to try to escape the reality of what my high school experience had become in that moment, right? But it sounds, it sounds amazing when we look back and, and see how an experience like this becomes so pivotal in our development, especially at that, those ages where we are trying to figure out who we are. And somehow it feels like um, I think everyone has these moments. I mean, well, most people do, I should maybe. Where it almost, there's a sense or a feeling like kind of getting off track of maybe a direction and, a, and with a certain momentum that we were going. And then this, these, I mean, you call it a traumatic event or, you know, um, a uh, socially um, destructive event in our life where we felt some alienation and disconnection from a community. And then all of a sudden that leads to creating um, some, a certain amount of awkwardness and, and, and lack of understanding of who we are all of a sudden because a lot of identification, especially for adolescents and young adults, is how do we, you know, we find ourselves a lot on how we connect to people and how we, you know, nurture and build those relationships. And I can only imagine what it was like to have that begin to seem to disintegrate for you. Totally. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and then there's still more, always, I think there probably always will be, you know, I used to, as an adult, be embarrassed to look back at that time period and explore mm-hmm. the what was happening to, for me in it. But today, um, I understand, like, that's part of self-discovery and, like, sure. taking a look at that. And so it's been really helpful just to, to understand, like, deeper dive into that and stuff before that it's funny you know through therapy and mm-hmm. through, through treatment stuff I've identified stuff before it all went left in high school that was wow like duh, tough and like makes sense why why it creates these stories and these um, these I, I narratives that, these yeah, narratives yeah. that are not necessarily who you are mm-hmm. but that you pick up at such a young age and roll with for um, well, and one of the things that's interesting too is with age, you know, comes slightly different perspectives and we get to look back at our past and, and say, you know, the person my person I was at 10 and 15 and 20 is not the person I am today, but there's definitely aspects of th- that, that person of, you know, like Paul, when I was, when I was 10 or 15 or 20 that I carried through to today and, and, and events and experiences that have shaped that. Um, and it's okay to go back and, and, and look at that and kind of wonder, you know, whether, whether it was really true. Um, and, and we've talked about this, you know, the, the, we kind of create these narratives and these stories and we, we just tell them, tell them to ourselves for so long and we think they're true and we, we get so used to telling them and to, we've told them over and over oh. again for so long that we think it's, it's reality and then we don't even understand that it's a story that we're telling. For sure. Yeah. For, and, and for me, it was vital, right? I mean, I can only speak to my experience with it, but and then I would think it would be helpful for anyone out there, but going back and, like, giving some some weight and some thought to, to the shit that happened back then and understand how it's... how I'm still attached, how I'm still attached to those stories mm-hmm. and, and that identity. Um, 
is, you know, it's funny to be, to be as an adult, but in denial about shit that you went through as a kid still. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like that's wrong. But I think without uncovering it, you favorite one of my favorite rappers <laughs> I always do, do it like, man let's hear it he has a line that says you can't heal what you never reveal right which is just perfect yeah, right to right. me like and who, I, and who said this Jay Z oh I didn't even say Jay Z yeah, 444 yeah, right. um, and you can't heal what you never reveal and it's like well if I just buried that stuff as a kid um, and it was traumatizing or it was harmful in some way and then I never talk about mm-hmm. it like I've never really healed that way yeah yeah. You know, and that goes for everything. And so, you know, that's been cool. And that, that's been, been, um, and, and one of the most powerful things in doing that and the things in, in recovery that you talk about in your book a lot is sitting in the driver's seat of reauthoring my story, having the ability to reauthor it, which is like one of the, probably the most powerful things that I take away in, in treatment, you know, so the, far for me. Well, we wrote it so we have to rewrite it, of course. That yeah. Comes down to like some I, basic. sometimes you get locked in this mindset that like the like like you can't rewrite it. You don't have the ability to mm-hmm. do that, but that's bullshit. Yeah. Which gets to the point of you know that idea. Um, do we we always do we always really have a choice? I mean, this kind of, this is if you, if you look at it from the behaviorist model, you know, behavior is predetermined and planned, and you know. The whole idea sometimes of free will has been questioned, you know, going back decades into Skinner and things like this where, you know, we're, we're, we're just the, uh, you know, we're just being shot out of an arrow and, you know, our direction's predetermined for a lot of people based upon, you know, certain experiences and, and things that we've been taught. That whole concept nowadays um, has kind of faded away, you know, the behaviorist model of things. And, and we're, we're much more into a place of realizing that the stories and the narratives that we create at any time in our life can be rewritten, reauthored. And it's really up to us. And it, it's not like this is impossible to do, but in the moment, especially if we feel victimized by our past, it can often seem like that's an impossible task to take on. Yeah. So, so when, when, in your experience, as you've been going through this process, um, and go and re- beginning to rewrite, or actually not beginning to, but been rewriting a, a lot of your your past and, and narratives. What what do you find the most challenging about that? I'm curious. Um, the emotional responses to that stuff, oh. right? Because, um, and that's always been a challenge is um, transferring logic to like heart, transferring the logic and the intellectual to the to like having some semblance of acceptance and okayness with it inside. I'm okay. Yeah. 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 And so that's the hardest part because I can look at my history and I can say, oh, well, let's, let's redefine this. Let's, let's reauthor how that looks. But then I get triggered by reading an article or an interaction, social interaction with a friend that drums up that history. And it's like, fuck, that's still a part of me. And um, so it's not as simple as just saying, I'm going to reauthor it. It's not like writing yeah. a book down, right? It, it has to be A little bit, maybe, but yes, no, it's not quite the same. You're right. It's not quite the same because you have to emotionally mm-hmm. rewrite it. And that's where I'm still definitely at in the, in the part. But that's the part that can be frustrating, you know, um, for me is, is that sometimes, um, you know, those triggers that take you back and put you in the position that you were when you were younger that caused you some of this pain or whatnot. And you're like, I thought I worked through this, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that's the most challenging for me. Well, I I wonder too, the, this, the correlation or maybe the association that happens, um, especially when we look at events of the past, 
that there if, if there if there's sort of this shame you know bubble over those events you know if, if, if there's the, the story and it leads to that feeling of shame which is, is that that really toxic um part of our, our narrative that be, that be, speaks to that there's something wrong with me that i'm a bad person that i'm a mistake and and you know guilt being the the simple part of that um the untoxic or the accountable human part of it yeah i'm a human i make mistakes um i sometimes make bad choices but again this all comes back to the ability i'm human i i, I have the ability to make choices you know and do I, do I punish myself for those choices and think that something's wrong with me, which is this, the shame side, or do I learn from that? And this is maybe one of the most important aspects, of, especially going back and looking at rewriting a narrative, is it that I go back, and I'm asking you, I mean, how you look at this, do I go back um, in, in my experience and rewrite it and from a place more of accountability, which means that it's not based upon shame of that I'm a bad person, but I made a bad choice or I made some mistakes at this point in my life, especially in developmental years. I mean, if, if we're kind of attached and caught up and feel almost shackled to the, uh, a destructive story about ourselves that has us feeling bad about who we are, moving through that and rewriting that seems to be like almost essential to going on with life and, and finding some sense of balance and, and wholeheartedness. You know? Yeah. Yeah, a lot. It's a lot there. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to follow. You know. A free association. So, <laughs> free yeah, that's what I love. And and, and, um, and so let's just take this part. Um, historically speaking, transforming shame because that's really what that was about. How do you find yourself able to kind of step through this, even though sometimes it it gets a bit toxic i mean you know i'm in that Brene brown talk that we've you know everyone's listened to about shame um you know she talks uh the, the jungian therapists uh, or analysts say that uh shame is the swampland of the soul right and that you know when we look back over our history we kind of feel that toxicity associated with that um what's your experience in going back and working through that, that those feelings and then beginning to rewrite that story so it comes from a place more of accountability and yeah. empowerment instead of shame yeah so um hmm. you do i do um you know you mentioned vulnerability and i you know it's sometimes feels like a it's hard to understand sometimes vulnerability you <laughs> oh, yeah right you, you and i have you that not thing, talk right? about <laughs> it, but like you know Brene brown i love Brene brown stuff too um She's like a factory. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like it takes, you know, accountability is definitely a piece. Like owning my part mm -hmm. for sure is is uh, important because to just sort of get rid of the shame and get out of the victim stance, like you have to, I have to. So being accountable and being able to be vulnerable about that stuff with someone else. And that is kind of dangerous too, the vulnerability piece, mm -hmm. because... Vulnerability isn't like the most, for me at least, isn't the most um, comfortable experience and it's not like, I'm not just a naturally vulnerable people like some others. And so the healing happens in that space where I'm able to bear my soul and like be vulnerable with mm -hmm. someone. Um, it's not easy to get there for me and then sometimes if I become vulnerable in, with someone that is not able to like help me through mm -hmm. it, 
it has the opposite effect. It drives me the other way, right? But I think, um, you know, vulnerable exploration of that stuff with a therapist, a connection, a friend, a family member is what sort of allows you to um, transfer it from the intellectual to the to the, like the heart or whatever. And I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Thinking no, that's it. good. That's good. That's good. So, um, with with that in mind, the, this aspect of accountability comes up, right? So, if we were just talking about rewriting, so if I'm going to rewrite something now, only I can do it. I mean, I can't wait for someone else, right? This whole idea of <laughs> which takes us into the area of relationships too. So, we talk about community connection. We also talk about relationships and. Um, and as we've seen over the past few weeks in some of the groups we've we've been in, um, you know, noticing how whenever we look outside of ourselves for someone to for us for someone to validate that we're okay, we kind of end up setting ourselves up for the big tumble at some point, right? Oh yeah. You know, I mean, this is this is this is romantic love one hundred and one, and I don't mean it from the sense of that that's a bad thing. It's just about being able to find balance. And, you know, you know, my whole premise right now is learning how to live wholeheartedly, which means I I can live um, with a heart that's open and vulnerable, but I also am not reliant on someone else to make sure that that's happening, that that um, love and happiness and uh, contentment are an inside job. It's 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 about me. So which which seems into like which seems like how you would think normally, mm -hmm. but is so opposite to how we tend to do it like we tend to at least in sure. you know in well culturally in dream, right culturally not just in treatment yeah. but like we tend to look for um something to fill that void with everything outside of ourselves all right so let's take the big jump okay <laughs> so because let's talk about culture let's talk about this culture that you know you grow up in here and and um because there is a certain uh, idea and, and maybe uh, idealistic one that you're going to find that I mean this is probably not just here of course it's all over you're going to find that that person that's going to complete you you know that no, it's such, like, it's such bullshit right? <laughs> but it's such a part of the fact no, I, mean, so... I mean think of think of love songs I mean oh my gosh you know right and you hear what you want to hear right yeah when you hear it you know because it comes through our own bias and filter system so this idea that I'm going to be okay, that someone else is going to, I'm going to look for that person that's going to validate me and, and it's going to tell me I'm going to be okay. There's, there's a certain level of insanity in that. And I, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying don't, you know, partner up, don't have a mate, don't have a, well, actually the partner's a good idea. Have someone that you can be with and live with and someone that can support you in your hopes and dreams, but they don't define who you are. And I think that that's hard in, in our culture right now. Yeah, and and I I I I got no no relationship history really to like draw from, right? <laughs> like my not that hasn't been my cup of tea for the past several years. But uh, the, just the idea that I need someone else to um, give me that fill that void that lasting mm-hmm. happiness is just it's ugh, it seems like such a flawed approach in the first place right mm. um but i do and it's confusing though because i do want a partner i do yeah. want um you know that meaningful connection with someone you know i love groups right mm-hmm. when we go and the smallest group is two and so mm-hmm. having that you know i think 
would would feed something within me, but it it can't be um, dependent for my happiness, right. dependent for right. my like whatever. So, well, that's kind of it, right? So even what we're doing right now, even this, even this moment, we're we're talking, um, we're being honest, we're being vulnerable, we're sharing our experience. Um, some of the premise of models of living a wholehearted life or living a sober life or being in recovery, even if you go back to the AA tenants, it's about the, the idea even behind that whole structure, which, you know, some people love, some people don't. Talk about love-hate relationships, right? 12-step community is a, a bastion of, of complexity when it comes to how people, people emotionally respond to it, right? And, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of vile come, can be spewed in that direction. Um, but this idea of, you know, sharing, sharing, sharing strength and hope. And there's definitely some power in that. If, if nothing else, the, the idea of community and fellowship and coming together, um, that's universal. We see that in life no matter um, how we want to explain it, that we, we, we get together, we connect, we talk, we're vulnerable. Um, intimacy is, is our ability to let people see what's authentic for us, what's real, without the fear, without the shame. And the idea of, of being able to do that in, in, in the world today, especially with, oh my gosh, you know, social media has become more and, oh, more, more, and more, more and more difficult. Social media, man. Yeah, it's challenging. Um, social media doesn't provide an outlet for that at all, right? No, in my, you it know, disconnects It you disconnects generally. you and it, yeah, all that jazz. And it's, it's hard because the vulnerability thing, that connection thing is totally a two-way street. You know, you have to have two people that are on the same, in the same, like, energy mm -hmm. in order to connect and do that. Um, you know. So, let's just, let's just take it from there then. In, in the constructs here, this idea, where, <laughs> where do you think that that kind of fell apart? For you when you when you look at you know your relationship to your family and your relationship to the the dogma the theology that you grew up in at some point you kind of from my experience you somewhere lost your connection to yourself because it didn't your your belief systems didn't align or coexist in the same space that, that your families did you you made it you were having a conscious um uh, awareness that you believe things differently mm -hmm. and you know that's that can really cause some internal conflict and feed shame too some internal conflict oh yeah <laughs> i mean that's so complex with the history of you know when you talk about um religion and that that kind of thing and it is a touchy subject too you know because because it's complex for them as well and i don't know man like i so like with so what was the question so let's <laughs> okay can I, yes we're recording okay so this idea of vulnerability and connecting with people um, within a family system the idea that I don't necessarily agree with certain belief systems within my family that I have a different viewpoint yeah and 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 my viewpoint is not looked on in the same way yeah, as yeah, the yeah. family's viewpoint of their belief systems. And so I find myself becoming um, 
I'm willing to be vulnerable with my family system because they tell me that my belief system is wrong and they just want me to eventually sign off on theirs. Even though it's not true or authentic for me, I'm expected at some point to come around. Right. I just haven't understood yet. Yeah. Well, it's, it's tricky with my history because, um, you know, um, growing up, like, I did, you know, have great experiences there and believe and serve an LDS mission. <laughs> and, and so the questioning of my faith didn't really come to be until I was 28, mm. you know? I carried heavy like like that that belief in the doctrinal part of of the church and um and i was grateful for it and i felt like it gave me some comfort um and and all of that and i still am i'm still you know in some on some way but the suddenly it was a light switch moment for me where like um and that's when when things really shifted a light switch moment in terms of like i read some stuff online that caused me to question the if I actually believed this doctrinally mm -hmm. and it just hit me like a ton of bricks and it like I said light switch moment where it was like oh I don't see the world that way I don't you know and then the liberation and the freedom that I experienced in that moment was like nothing I'd ever felt because suddenly guilt and shame left yeah. overnight is so it so it felt in the moment right it was, it's, it was a transformation it was a totally transformational where I read it light switch if I don't believe this, I don't have to be guilty, feel guilty or shame about this stuff that I've done in life. And it was really authentic. It was an authentic shift, but it also was complex because suddenly with that freedom that, you know, being an addict, being mm -hmm. someone, it gave me a license to revisit like hardcore using because now I could use drugs without guilt and shame. <laughs> yeah, I never did figure that one out. <laughs> You know, it was like, oh, this is why I've been unable to drink responsibly or do heroin responsibly yeah. because... Like a gentleman. Yeah, right? Because I've been caught up in believing that this was wrong. And so now that's gone, I can do this. Right. You know, and that just led me, actually, I went harder than ever before. And that led me to like the most guilt and shame right <laughs> like a year because later. now it's just you right now it's, it's just, just me thing, right? yeah and it, that was actually the whole it was like a perfect storm the whole religion thing uh -huh. um was at the very same time i was introduced to something called rational recovery mm -hmm. and i was introduced to it in my basement by myself on a forum right mm -hmm. so i had no one to bounce it off of mm -hmm. and this idea that suddenly i'm not a victim mm -hmm. i'm not i don't have a disease mm -hmm. all that stuff right. was so like um, empowering to me, but again, I don't have a disease. I don't have so hell. Fuck it. I can go do whatever now, right? I can I can use Adderall to get through work. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then and that happened literally like around the same time of the the whole religious awakening, where mm -hmm. I felt like I found myself when I lost my faith was mm -hmm. literally how I felt during that time. Um, so all of that together propelled me into a deeper hole because, you know, I didn't know how to like assimilate, like, like make that um, and put that into like some understanding or perspective sure. that was healthy. Didn't know how to navigate through that much 
free will and independence is what yeah. I'm hearing you say, yeah. which is kind of the, which is actually exciting in some ways that, yeah, okay, it's all up to me at this point. I mean, I don't have to blame it on, you know, uh, the church and I don't have to blame it on my, my parents. I don't have to blame it on family or the ex-girlfriend or, you know, boyfriend or whatever it is. Yeah. It's really, guess what? It's up to me. And, and I did, man. Like, so there was like six months where I blamed the religion thing, um, not on my parents because, um, not at all. Not not on my parents. I never like tried to scapegoat my parents that much, but just the the con like the idea, the doctrine, and feeling like indoctrinated and that kind of thing. Um, but it was it was almost like going through the stages of grief, you know, to get to that point of acceptance. And um, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of sadness. There was a, you know all that stuff. Lots of bargaining. Like lots of bargaining. Lots of. If I, you know, where would I be had I not been attached to this yeah. for my whole adult life, you know? Right. And that, like, thinking in those terms is is part of the process, but obviously not healthy for living life. And so um, once I got past the anger, the fr- like, all of that stuff, um, which, you know, sometimes still I'm triggered to go back to there today. But mm-hmm. once, once it was less raw, um, you know, it was okay and... It's been a journey for sure, <laughs> but um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's then move into the bozoness of all this. I love the bozo. Yeah. The let's let's let's. Yeah. And and by that, I mean to to kind of look back and and I appreciate you saying I don't scapegoat my parents. Um, that I, I wanted to. What I'm hearing. Well, and I, I want to take. I'm taking accountability. I want to take accountability, and you know, they know. Like I don't. Like I, great. I have the most compassionate, hardworking, loving parents, mm-hmm. right? And so, what's difficult with the religion thing is feeling like you're rejecting their love mm-hmm. by. Um, living your truth that their truth isn't yours. Sure. Which is an ongoing dilemma in, in most people's lives. Even, um, you know, anytime love gets involved and there's there's qualifiers for it. Like, you know, is love attached to, ha- you know, holding a certain belief system or doing certain things for somebody? And it gets kind of caught up with this within family systems. But the same thing happens in intimate, you know, personal relationships that we have with people. We can have the same outcome too. So you'll, you, so I know you love me when you do these things, right? Yeah. Check it so yes when you go to church yes when you know you do the dishes yes when yeah you have a job and all these kinds of things and and with my family you know and we won't get too personal but like we've moved we made so much progress at least in in my did you say we're not going to get personal no we we are i'm saying we're not going to get super we're not going to dig in super you're you're not going to you're not going to do your family work here no no yeah i'm not trying to do my family work here um but like you know that like expectation it's been long enough now that i feel like that expectation isn't so heavy which has allowed us to be much more comfortable around each other and i feel like we're building on that foundation so everyone learning some level of acceptance of each other yeah exactly that's a journey that's a process everyone goes through their own thing and um you know well and and families they just you know they want the best for their kids they you know i mean you know i'm a parent and you know, I was just thinking about this uh, last night with a son, uh, my son who was struggling with some issues with his schooling he had to make some choices with and, and watching and see the pain that he was in during this time. Um, you know, I couldn't fix it. 
I couldn't fix it. It was hard to watch, you know, the see that pain. And so that's just the whole thing about parents. It all depends on the lens we look at it through. So yeah. if my construct says, you know, I have a certain belief system and a certain faith, and that faith is how I, you know, um, qualify all these different aspects of my life through, when I would look at my kids, I would qualify them based through that, that same uh, paradigm that same lens mm -hmm. so it's not that there's you know it's not that there's anything wrong with that it's just that it's only one perspective of reality sure. from a certain paradigm the the lines are i mean the enmeshment thing is real life it's hard to let people you care about have their pain uh -huh. without like either trying to fix it or just disconnecting and like separating from it and i tend to disconnect and separate from it um but like um you have to let people have their own experience and not attach or like create self-judgment about it within yourself. Which... Define who I am or who someone else is based upon someone else's experience. Again, that kind of gets into that dependency and codependency. Yeah, the code, yeah, which is just life. Yeah, which is just life. Okay, so back to bozo-ness, the wonderful part of just being another bozo on the bus. How does that simplify your life? The idea that you're just like everyone else. And it's like, a, it's a refreshing... Um, perspective that makes me not the center of the world you know like ego the whole ego conversation is um ego is like such a destructive force an unchecked ego is such a destructive mm -hmm. force and the ego tells me that i'm different it tells me that i'm better than or or even less than or whatever like oh yeah you know all of that and um you know i'm just another bozo on the bus <laughs> it just puts into perspective that we're all having the you know we're like the human we're all unique we're all special right but at the same time we're all having the same human experience on some level and caring wanting the same things so just another bozo on the bus it's just nice to get me out of my own way and to sort of um, put my ego in check and connect with others yeah it makes it it can't simplify some things it just, it just, it just that statement. I really like it. it just, it's funny because it's funny, right? Yeah, it's it makes funny. it kind of clownish. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I'm the first to admit I'm a, I'm a, I'm a freaking clown all the time. I mean, not all the time, but there's, there's just pl plenty of times I just well, make a fool of myself. And can I accept that? Can I accept and have and and see that that's just part of being human? That I'm just like everyone else. It's the idea it comes what you said about ego when all of a sudden the idea of entitlement comes in and how I should have a different set of rules, yeah. you know, and that's if there's it, it, you know again that leads to discrimination, it leads to tribalism, um, bias, prejudice, bigotry, all of these things come from that, and the one thing that I think for anyone who's trying to live a better life more wholeheartedly or to find balance and whether it be you know through you know some mental health issues or addiction issues you know is trying to find some sense of balance and um, and stability homeostasis where I'm okay where I'm okay I'm going to be okay and saying you know if I'm just another bozo bus I'm just like everyone else I got my shit yeah well, part of it is the humor in it. They just like the bozo. Like humor is, like a great Humor's way. Humor is important. It's so yeah. important, yeah. right? Like it's definitely a way to um, grow and heal, like and just have fun, like having fun, smiling. But like, we take ourselves so serious. We we take ourselves um, 
and our like I said the world I'm the center of the universe type thing like no you're not you know and um, yeah getting out of that like blowing everything up and catastrophizing is is huge and I love that you know just another bozo on the bus and the entitlement thing man oh fuck entitlement you know it was like when I went to Bali um that was when I realized how entitled I was as just an American like oh you know just blow it out you know bring it out to just cold the whole like you you know what did you notice yeah I just just that I was owed something I was I did you know I I the bathroom it doesn't work like toilets in the US what the hell <laughs> this is wrong. I want an American toilet yeah I want you know um, and and then also when you're seeing people that have so little um, it's sort of shocking into you like holy shit like first world problems we say that all the time but here I'm experiencing and seeing this on a level that's um making me take a, take account of like my entitlement and just how blessed and how much we have here just by being here <laughs> with not just by the fact you're born here you know so that was crazy for sure well that's true up, up to certain things you, you can be born here but still not have the same rights well, right right I know I know but, but still like I don't mean to get too political but yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about DACA. I, I so for me, <laughs> right? My, I mean, I that's mean, it. Right? Just being born into yeah. what I was no, born I into. Yeah. Um, so you know, and and you know no different. You know, it's all relative to what you experience. Yeah. And so, exactly. like growing up, um, you get told about poverty. You get told about um, that kind of stuff, but you don't experience it. Yeah. And so, experiencing it is crazy. All right, your uh, your pearls of wisdom. Do you have a pearls of wisdom that you like to live by right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> um, someone said that I, I was talking. So I heard this from someone. Um, if you want things you've never done, or if you want things you've never had, you have to do, do things you've never done before. Okay, which and what does that mean to you? Um, getting out of your comfort zone, you know, and, um, you know, being curious about how to grow and progress. Like, and for me lately, it's been, it's been a number of things. One really is exercise. Like, no, has been huge, wow. huge. What, what, what are you doing? What's your routine like? Uh, I run. So I've signed up for a half marathon. I'm running on. I guess if I speak it onto this podcast, it'll hold me really accountable. Yeah, there you go. Right? Yeah, you're, you're, but I'm paid, so <laughs> yeah. So I started running um, a couple months ago, and it's man, it's been crazy. Like I started, it took me two miles. It took me 25 minutes to do two miles, and now I can do. I did eight miles in like 65 minutes the other day over a two and a half month span, right? Um, which. Isn't that remarkable? It's crazy, the, the right? The human body the is The body remarkable. is insane. And the mind, right? Because yeah. this is... And I've... Yeah. I, it's part of, part of the, like, wanting to do things you've never had, you got to do things you've never yeah. done. Like, I've tried to quit smoking so many times, and I still haven't quit, mm-hmm. but I thought, 
I'm going to start running and commit myself, sign up for the, and I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to, and I haven't bought a pack of cigarettes in a couple months, but I smoke like individual prime times, or I'll go buy a single <laughs> every day, a couple. Oh, prime time. <laughs> um, but, um, so that was part of the motivation there, it was like, I have to do something different, yeah. I have to approach this different, and so running, um, and it's gotten a lot easier just by doing it, and also by smoking less. When I first went, my lungs, ugh. But I smoke so much less now, and then I've put so much effort into it. And running it, like exercise, really pushing yourself in exercise has just given, gives you like a micro experience of un- being uncomfortable and pushing through that, you know? Because I would go 10 minutes and want to cry. It was, I wouldn't even hit the physical wall, I would hit the mental and emotional wall. Oh, wow. That, you know? So physically, you did not. You had, you felt like you had more and physical more stamina, stamina more emotional, but emotionally and mentally, it was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. You'd start to sweat, you know. And then you pushing by pushing through that, um, then you get the runner's high, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is, uh, that's like uh, shit. Uh, it's real. It's, it's real. <laughs> this is like cocaine, man. Yeah. That was honestly after like really experiencing the runner's high, you know. And I could see how people could make that an unhealthy, you know. And so. Um, yeah, but, you know, and in and, and the last couple months, you know, that mantra, I wanted, if you want things you never had to do, you never done. I've, I've been journaling. I've been trying to carry, like, recovery more into my personal life outside of just, like, my groups and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at it from that perspective, sometimes I don't want to read and journal, but then the thought comes back to me, like, well, the consistency and, uh, yeah, so... That's what I would say. That was great pearls of wisdom. There you have it, folks. I'm telling you, that was beautiful. So if you want, if you still just a bozo, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, perfect. <laughs> but that sounds like a great, a great analogy. So you, what, a couple more things, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. But the, what was what came out of that also was the idea of cross addiction, right? So how easily it is to go from one thing to another. Now, I know you know my view on this. Definitely. Um, physical activity is a is a good thing to take up when you're getting away from drugs or alcohol, um, you know, or, or some other type of addictive behavior. Uh, physical exercise can be great unless that's your unless that's your well, I use the term drug or behavior of choice, right? Unless that's your addictive behavior is exercise, then probably it looks to you know fulfill that in some other way. Um, but what have you noticed in your life when you think across addiction? What What are the things that you that you've gone to that and not not that you do yeah. anymore? But what were the no, ones? No, I still yeah. do. Yeah. I think it's a human condition, man. Yeah. Like addiction, um, <laughs> like it is a, drive. It is it's a, a human, human condition. condition. Right it's right not. Right. It's you know the drive for whatever. Um, man, I've cross addicted to to. Um, Netflix, Hulu, you know, binge watching TV sure, shows. Yeah big cross addiction smoking like I wasn't a big like the smoking thing I wasn't a huge smoker in my drug use I would smoke a couple cigarettes a day but um once I put down the drugs I picked up the pack a day habit um Hmm. totally um so that that was definitely a cross addiction um you know and other unsavory things. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, you don't want to tell us what those things are. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you've got the sex thing, the masturbation, like, like that stuff is a real conversation. That no, it's true. Uh, definitely. Um, 
sex is an easy one, um, so just like romantic love, and you know, I, I share uh, I share about that a lot from the aspect of uh, romantic love has the same high as uh, the, the the brain translates romantic love um, in the same way it it lights up when it takes cocaine the the same kind of reaction and the same kind of draw and wanting more and a fix from it's the same too so that's and, and as we all know anyone who's been involved in the sobriety or recovery community at all that that's the number one cause of relapse mm -hmm. is romantic love you know yeah. or or or, or um, sex addiction you know and, and needing needing gotta have it gotta have it kind of thing so um with that in mind, uh, when we talk about relational dynamics here, and we know that um, uh, how important those can can be, and I, I did, that brought up this thing I remember about I was watching Russell Brand, um, you know, talking about, or maybe it was read it in his book that that he when he stopped when he stopped using um, alcohol or heroin and whatever his, his primary DOCs were, drug of choices, that uh, he went to sex. That that was definitely an easy outlet for him to go to, but all the same behaviors and everything and the same thinkingers were all surrounding that as they were the use of the drugs. It doesn't change, and this is where drugs often in alcohol the, the substances become the scapegoat, um, especially in in, in uh, family systems or, or relationships. That you know if they take the drugs away, <laughs> everything will just be fine. Yeah, right. It's, so, <laughs> it's that's so that's so funny that that's such a common thing for families that haven't yet experienced this yeah. you know my family same with me same thing I've seen countless others you know the family just thinks well let's get them into treatment they'll be fixed yeah we'll fix them and we'll fix them yeah. when it's like because the family the, the family fixes. doesn't need fixing yeah. he yeah. needs fixing yeah. yeah right yeah which we know doesn't work and so we want the families to participate too so all you families out there remember this is this our, our model and our idea here is that uh, addiction is is part of this family system itself and that the the person or the identified patient the IP we sometimes call them they're a symptom within the family system I, I, families don't always like to hear this and I do as you know I do a lot of family groups but with this idea in mind and that's that's another conversation we can have um, with that in mind there's the the dynamics and of, of the different kinds of relationships and they these get crossed over and mixed up a lot um, but the idea um, of where you see yourself. Are, do you see yourself right now um, as the fixer or the saboteur, or do you kind of go back and forth from those those roles of that dynamic? The fixer being the one that wants to take care of everyone and make everybody okay, you know, uh, the traditional codependent or dependent dynamic in a relationship. Yeah, the saboteur yeah. being the one that, aha, you know, has a certain more um, narcissistic, you know, the more formal role of the addict, you know, um, but I, I, I'm not, I, I, I don't really always like that terminology. Right, as right. I like I mean, the fixer it's, and the it's saboteur, to, you know. Yeah, it's, it's definitely more complex, but like, I feel like I'm a saboteur internally masquerading as a fixer that doesn't dare to try to fix. <laughs> oh, I like it. And I can see that. That's a great, that's a great yeah. insight. Uh, yeah. yeah, it just kind of came to me as, yeah, I feel like that. Because I, I love, shout out to the family, shout out to, yeah. I love my family and I want connection, I want meaningful, but, but I, I don't know how to go about that and you know what I mean? And so yeah, saboteur masquerading as a scared fixer. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. So, all right, Brady, thank you. 
I appreciate you coming in today and doing this. Yeah, um, this was fun. I will, uh, you'll be up and wild and, and on the internet here. Yeah, we're going to go viral.